Welcome again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation on Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Good morning, folks. This is our continued series of the Christian history um, and uh, the Protestant Reformation. We're so grateful for the opportunity we have to talk to you this morning. I especially appreciate the fact that the numbers who've been participating and listening to this on YouTube are increasing. And that's really good news, especially since I'm having such a hard time talking. But I think what we're sharing is very valuable. I'm so grateful for my two brethren from Golden Gems Radio who are helping me. I invite you to listen to Golden Gems Radio and uh, prepare yourself for the future. For now, we're going to talk about the Protestant Reformation. And uh, unless we have any other things we need to talk about, we'll go ahead. Now, I'm going to start with each, each of these pictures. Um, uh, each of these frames has a picture that, that kind of shares what I'm trying to teach. Uh, during this time uh, in America, 90% of the people are not churched. They're not going to churches. So that, that really led to the idea that we've got to go out and, and preach the gospel. And so the Methodists were the were the most creative with their approach, but the Baptists and the Presbyterians and etc. did the same thing. They'd go out and they'd have these camp meetings. They'd call them camp meetings. They really wouldn't have people camp. They would camp out, and then they from day to day they would talk to the people about their different churches. And uh, their hope was that the ninety percent of the population that wasn't converted would be converted to the truth. Those looking for a New Testament restoration were called seekers. The Smiths were seekers. There are a lot of seekers around there looking for a, a, a restoration of New Testament Christianity. And so Joseph Smith could have been born in a better time and place. Uh, it was a specific time, a specific place, for a specific reason. We're talking about that today. We're talking about a lot of things today. In spite of the zeal of reformers, Complete religious freedom was not achieved in America until the American Revolution enhanced the climate for religious freedom. As we, as we discussed last class, uh, of the 13 colonies, nine had a state-supported religion that was required for people to participate in. And so the American Revolution destroyed that. And that's really a good thing. We don't, we don't hear that much about the American Revolution, but it did do that. Um, and I'll talk about that today. As colonists united against the British, they discovered that their religious differences were really not important to their cause. Which was to create not religious freedom, but just freedom from the British. Instead, they could agree on the essentials of their religious beliefs without being unified and still maintain their religious and other important liberties. One of the things you're going to learn today is that what you've learned your whole life probably isn't completely true. But I'm going to tell you the actual truth, what really happened, and it makes more sense when you think about it. The Revolutionary War from 1775 to 1783, which only predated the Restoration by 37 years, decimated the Anglican and Quaker churches being seen as Tory, as well as the Dutch Reformed Church. So these churches that had been so popular and controlled the colonies before the Revolution were destroyed because they were seen as pro-English or pro-some other country. Add to that the widespread influence of deism 
as well as the continued expansion of the American population west, and all these factors combine for the further de-Christianization of the general populace. Now we read that term de-Christianization and we think, well, that's not what happened. The, the, the Smiths were Christian. No, what I'm talking about is not that. De-Christianization is not belonging to a church, which is what we want to have happen. For the restoration to be successful, people need to not belong to a Christian, a Christian church. This was critical for the restoration, as a de-Christian population meant one that was not influenced completely by the apostasy. That's why having a de-Christianized nation was so important in America. Now, I wish I cared more, but I don't care what you learned in elementary school. I don't care what you learned in high school. I don't care what you thought was true. This country was not, was de-Christianized, which allowed them to be open to the restoration. Although 23.1% of the world population were Christians by the end of the 18th century, only about 7% of the inhabitants of the new nation were gathered into what we would call apostate churches. So you got 7% going to apostate churches, 93% are not, which is really good for us because we've got to teach the gospel that they, they, they won't have to separate themselves from the church to join our church. To join our church. In 1800, the percentage of church attendance and membership was as low or lower than at any other period in the history of our country, and there were fewer church members in proportion to the population in the United States than in any other Christian nation. So of all the nations that were Christian, which would have been all of Europe, etc., um, we were the least Christian nation, and we were the, least, the nation that had the least number of people that belonged to churches. And this was a miracle. It had to happen this way for the restoration to be successful. People would cross the ocean and come here and they would not belong to churches, which, which led them open to the restoration. Critical, critical, critical. And here you see a man preaching to the public on a, on a stool. This was very popular during this time because people were not part of churches. It took the Revolutionary War with the accompanying Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and Bill of Rights for the residents of the newly formed United States of America to begin to warm up to the idea to religious tolerance. Following these events, heretics, people who did not hold the values of apostate Christianity, were viewed differently and persecuted less. Many Americans of the early Republic recognized that a new religious era had been inaugurated. Let's talk about that for a second. What, what new religious era had been inaugurated? Well, the inauguration they're talking about was simply this. Because people did not belong to churches, 93% did not belong to churches, it was difficult to get them to become members of churches, which, which, which created an opening for churches that hadn't existed before. Namely, one of them would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Who is this man? In a tract published in 1805, the year Joseph Smith was born, one of the New England leaders in the struggle for religious liberty, Isaac Backus, wrote, Yeah. This is a picture of Isaac Bassick, and he was uh, Isaac Bacchus, and he was one of the leaders in the struggle for religious liberty. In other words, we don't want to have churches that are supported by, by states. We have cause to remember with thankfulness that God had established a civil government over us, which allows equal liberty to all, so that each one may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Such great, such unspeakable privileges demand proportional love and obedience. He's 
glorying in the fact that he doesn't have to belong to a particular church. He can do it or he can worship God however he wants. Now, who are these men? Who are these men and this woman? Well, let's talk about it. Led by English evangelicals, there was also a sudden upswelling or upwelling of commitment to the worldwide mission as missionary fervor seized all the mainstream British Protestant churches. Even a catalog of dates and institutions provokes astonishment. The energetic, not to say driven, Reverend Thomas Koch, appointed by the Wesleyan Conference in 1790 as General Supervisor of Methodist World Missions, a Baptist Missionary Society in 1792, a Congregational-based London Missionary Society in 1795, an Anglican Evangelical Church Missionary Society in 1799, a British and Foreign Bible Society in 1804, an American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions in 1810. Now, why is this important? Because this is what's happening in America. Because 93% of the people do not belong to churches. All these other churches are, trying, are sending out missionaries to teach them. That opens up an opportunity for us to send missionaries as well. We're part of the, we're part of the group, part of the crowd. And so if these churches had not set up these missionary organizations and went out to teach the people, we would have looked weird or strange or maybe even been uh, discounted. But because all the other churches were sending out missionaries as well, us sending out missionaries was not a big deal. It wasn't that abnormal. Look at all these missionaries. These are all the latest missionaries, of course. Primarily led by the British Anglophone world, missions were taken up to the Pacific, Australia, all of Africa, China, Japan, and Korea throughout the 19th century. Tragically, these missions often occurred against the backdrop of colonialism, as the British missionaries aided the British Empire in its empire building, westernization of the world. Pushing back against these forces, missionary success in some lands was limited, but Christianity grew and flourished worldwide in many nations. It was against this backdrop of that to con the conditions for the restoration ripened. I hope you can see the connection here. As these churches sent missionaries out throughout the world, it, ri it ripened the, the time for the restoration because we were going to do the same thing, and it made it an opportunity for us to do that. Now, look at this picture carefully. You see the tents, you can see the stand, people sitting. This is one of the camp meetings, okay? Concurrent with this sudden upsurge of Christian mission among the English-speaking world, alongside the American Revolution and the establishment of the Constitution, was a second awakening that brought about a reorientation of Christian thinking. Now... This is not an overstatement. This is probably an understatement. Uh, let me explain to you what I mean. Several new religious societies grew in strength and held a variety of beliefs. Unitarians, Universalists, Methodists, Baptists, and Disciples of Christ. Here you have a chart showing the growth of denominations. Methodists are blue, Catholics are yellow, etc. So these churches are really going to grow in America during that, during this time period, 1820-1860. Now that's critical for us because it allows an opening for us to grow as well. At the time of the revolution, despite all the bustle of the Great Awakenings, less than 10% of the American population were form, 
formal church members, and a majority had no significant involvement in church activities. But they believed in the Bible and they believed in God. And so as we go on and teach these people, they come to, ch to Christ because they believe in him. They just don't believe in the churches or the time which were apostate anyway. In 1815, active church membership had grown to around a quarter of the population. By 1914, it was approaching half. This in a country which in the same period through immigration and natural growth had seen its members balloon from 8.4 million to 100 million. So, the other churches were successful. That's not a problem for us. We were too. That growth reflected the dynamism freedom, high literacy rates, and opportunity available in this society, and the Christian religion seemed to owe its success to a competitive and innovative spirit as much as did American commerce and industry. Now, this was not written by a member of the church. This was written by Darmaid McCullough in his book, which I'm going to show you in a minute. And um, what you'll find is these Christian writers who are not members of our church, just writing about Christianity in general, often talk about us, which Dominic McCullough does in his book. Oh, that's difficult to see. Same information. Um, sorry. Okay. During this time, a theological revolution was taking place among the various denominations of Christianity. A theological revolution. During the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there was a significant reorientation of Christian thinking necessary for the restoration. The traditional view that the Godhead consisted of three beings of one essence was challenged by the deists, Unitarians, and most Universalists. Of course, and us. The concept that the Bible was infallible was also denied by these three religious groups. And us. Declaring that revelation was continuous, most members of communal societies in the early 19th century insisted that the Bible was not all-inclusive. I hope you can see how these moves were necessary to prepare people for the Restoration. Seven Principles of the Unitarian uh, universal, Universalism. Um, if you look at this chart, it says, Respect for the independent web of all existence of which we are a part. And then you got the seven points in there. Um, what you'll see is spiritual growth, world community, responsible meaning, uh, etc. are all things necessary for the restoration. The deists, Unitarians, and Universalists furthermore rejected the traditional view that Adam's sin was imputed to man, and nearly every member of a denomination emerging among the revolutionary generation emphasized that man played a vital role in the salvation experience. Hmm. Very important. Meanwhile, the concept that unbelievers suffered eternally in hell declined in popularity, while the number of adherents to the doctrine of believers' baptism by immersion for the remission of sins and the imminence of the second coming increased. Hopefully you can see how these are common doctrines in our church. So, you have people on their own without the restoration at all coming to terms with ideas that are concrete in the restoration so that when Joseph Smith and company go out and teach the gospel, they accept it. Basic principles of the restoration movement. The unity of all Christians. Let the unity of Christianity be a polar star. 
We progress then from the Babylonian contend with the, the opinions of truth should not be made terms of fellowship. We seek to be Christians only, but not the only Christians. The numbers who join independent societies led by restorationist theologians that attacked apostate concepts described in the creeds of Christendom in the early 19th century is evidence that many settlers in this country and other parts of the world recognize the need for a restoration of New, Test New Testament Christianity. Well, these are ideas that are held today. They were very, very popular back then. That's why Joseph was born when he was. As the beliefs of numerous Protestants were brought into harmony with the teachings of Christ, conditions became more favorable for the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can see how slow this movement was. It, it took to, to Heavenly Father hundreds of years to get people ready for the restoration. Are we in the brink of a new restoration? Well, let's see. Those searching for this restoration of the New Testament Christianity were popularly known as seekers. Many of them were ripe for the divine restoration and became its early converts. Almost concurrently with the Second Great Awakening, there arose a spirit of revivalism in this regard. Itinerant preachers held spirited camp meetings among new settlers in frontier areas of the growing United States. Lonely settlers from farms and villages gathered in huge crowds to enjoy the camp meetings. Of which Joseph Smith and others participated in the area. Noisy but gifted preachers lent a festive air to these religious gatherings while trying to win convert, converts to their faith. The Second Great Awakening also influenced the formation of voluntary associations to promote missionary work, education, moral reform, and humanitarianism. We look at something like missionary work and we think, well, missionary work has been around forever. That's not true. It didn't even start. Missionary work didn't even start until the second, first Second Great Awakenings. These people start to go out and preach the gospel to other people. Revivals brought religious emotions to a fever pitch and aided the growth of the popular denominations, particularly the Methodists and Baptists. This religious awakening lasted for at least 40 years, including the time of Joseph Smith's first vision. So Heavenly Father had to place Joseph Smith in a situation where people would be open to the idea of people knocking on their doors and teaching them the gospel and having these meetings, etc. He had to put him in that situation. If he would have been one day, what would he have done? Uh, it's difficult to say. Here you see a, a very learned scholar teaching the people who are on their knees, begging for forgiveness. The Methodist societies in America were highly successful for various reasons. The unselfish ministers worked for $80 a year and could obtain ministerial service much easier than in other organized religious societies. That's a really fancy way of saying Methodist preachers didn't have to be trained in seminaries. They could just go and teach. They also allowed for a much wider range of beliefs and adopting the itinerant preaching circuit ministry of their founder. They divided the vast land holdings of the American people into circuits, providing one preacher for each one. 
However, the Baptists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists also had thriving missionary programs and camp meetings. So there were missionaries everywhere. There were these camps set up everywhere to try to convince the people to come to their, to their church. Now this is a very interesting picture. Prospect of the city of New York. You can see the different things. The number of the Trinity Church, the Presbyterian meeting, North Church, St. George Chapel, the Pibia, Newburgh building, etc. Most of the things in this picture are churches. The majority of the Republic's churchgoers and the overwhelming majority in positions of power were Protestants of some description, although the Roman Catholic Church also benefited hugely from immigration during the century and by around 1850 became America's largest single denomination. It is not surprising that in the wake of the Revolution, entirely new churches began to be founded, Perhaps more puzzling, in fact, is that hardly any brand new denominations had been created before 1776. Very, very interesting, and it makes sense. Revivalism was firmly in Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterian culture already, so not only could they happily accommodate all this, but as ministers grappled to harness their congregation's startling releases of emotional energy, it was hard to sort through denominational labels. Um, this sounds like Heavenly Father's in charge here. He is. The voices of Dia's founding fathers seemed far away. There was plenty more creative re reconstruction of Christianity in this most industrious and ingenious of Western societies. Spiritualism and the Church of Christ science scientists, products of yet more visionary women, both spread themselves from the USA through the Western world and beyond. Yet of all the new departures amid the Second Awakenings, the most radical was the work of Joseph Smith, who may be seen as one of a chain of gifted young people in the 19th century, applying their gifts to the escaping, the deprivation and social uncertainty in which they found themselves inspired by the polychrome religious turbulence of their age. That quote is not from a member of the church. David Darmian McCullough is not a member of the church. He works in he works at Oxford. He's a British person. And he's writing about Joe Smith. And it's uh, how he is. Uh, the most radical of the work was Joe Smith. Continue Darmian. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, who both lived during the Second Great Awakening and were heavily influenced by it, openly taught that John Wesley's Methodism was the closest thing to the restoration of primitive Christianity, but fell just short of it. John Wesley himself refused to break with the Anglicans, the Church of England, because he did not have the authority to perform the ordinances and he believed they inherited the apostolic succession from the Roman Catholic see see two real problems with uh, the churches the way it was then was the Catholic Church came from the Roman Catholic see and the Anglicans were part of that not only was Joseph Smith leaning towards the Methodism at the time of the first vision but more converts to Mormonism also came from the Methodists 
than any other faith group. That's an important uh, thing to note. We had more converts who were Methodist first than any other denomination. When the Founding Fathers appeared to Wilford Woodruff in the St. George Temple, only five were ordained high priests, one unnamed George Washington, Christopher Columbus, Benjamin Franklin, and John Wesley. Brigham Young taught that if Wesley had received the priesthood from God, he would have done exactly what Joseph Smith did. That's quite a statement, but it's true. I've, I've, I've noted the author there. Rather, Joseph Smith's creation of a heavenly kingdom proved more long-lasting. Born in rural poverty in Vermont and pursued by poverty in his New York State childhood, young Joseph, on the edge of so many cultures, evangelicism, self-improvement, popular history, and archaeology, Freemasonry, drew out of them the makings of a lost world. Shortly after his marriage in 1827, an angelic ministrant named Moroni delivered an ancient record inscribed on golden plates. The message which the semi-literate 22-year-old translated into the King James Bible English, his newly wed and devoted wife Emma, and later two friends taking his dictation, was a formidably long text published in 1830. The book, of, the book, written long before largely by Moroni's father, Mormon, was the story of God's people, their enemies, their eventual extinction in the 4th century CE. So with this book and Joseph Smith's inspiration, Mormonism looked, took shape, became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which regarded itself as a restoration of an authentic Christianity otherwise lost. It moved in block, as so many utopian groups then did, to found a new ideal community on the frontier. The first stop in Ohio proved only one in a series of moves, because Smith and his leadership were prone to frighten and infuriate their neighbors. After several exasperating attempts to find favor with any government institution or elected official, Smith was fortified by a revelation to declare his candidacy in the 1844 presidential election. After further confrontations with the forces of unbelief, vigilantes shot him and his brother dead in an Illinois jail while he was awaiting trial on charges of intimidating a hostile local newspaper out of existence. Yet this was not the end for the Mormons. Brigham Young led the battered faithful on the final journey, which would save their movement at a cost of a hundred days westwards travel by a wagon to Utah. There was a long and stormy path to weary acceptance by wider American society, not least because of one of Smith's later revelations posthumously released to the public in 1852, had been told that he must authorize polygamy. Brigham Young reminisced in later life that he desired the grave when first informed of this in 1843, but he later implemented it thoroughly in his own life. It was 1890 before the mainstream of the church laid polygamy aside, 
and plenty of Mormons did not acknowledge that decision. Some still do not, and carefully maintain seclusion in Utah and Arizona, but Utah still became a full state in 1896. Now, that review of church history was done by a non-member, Darmaine McCall, and I thought it was really interesting for you to see how they saw it. God's perfect timing. God knows the end from the beginning and is the author of the grand design of human history. You have to see that in this in this presentation. You have to see how Heavenly Father was the one behind making things happen the way they did. He could have restored the church in any time he wanted, but he waited until the 1800s because that's when the United States was open and free and able to do that. But prior to the Revolutionary War, it would have been like any other country. He directed the affairs of history so that America was appropriately fertile soil for the seed of the restored gospel to be planted and tended by his chosen seer, Joseph Smith. Now the real miracle here is this. Who would have chosen Joseph Smith to lead a church? Nobody would have. He came from a family that was destitute, that was living on borrowed uh, time and land. Uh, they, they were barely hand to mouth with their food. He had no education. Nobody would have chosen him to be the leader of a church. But God did because he had the gifts that were, were cultivating the pre-earth life to do what he needed to do when he got here. One reason this was true was because under the Constitution, the Lord could restore the gospel and reestablish his church. Both were part of a greater whole. Both fit into his pattern for the latter days. There it is, the Constitution of the United States of America. The Prophet Joseph Smith stated that the Constitution of the United States is a glorious standard. It is founded in the wisdom of God. Oh, that's beautiful. It is a heavenly banner. It is to all those who are privileged with the sweets of liberty, like the cooling shades and refreshing waters of a great rock in a thirsty and weary weary land. After a few years, as an unsuccessful confederation of states, the United States drafted a new constitution in 1787 that was ratified in 1789. We often attach the date of 1776 to the constitution, but it wasn't really written for over 10 years later. It wasn't ratified until 1789 just a few years before Joseph was born. This document, which was formed by the hands of wise men whom the Lord raised up under this very purpose, Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, verse 80, embodied both the democratic impulse for freedom and the fundamental need for order. Freedom of religion was guaranteed in the First Amendment to the Constitution. The restoration of the gospel and of the Lord's true church could not have taken place amidst the religious intolerance in Europe and early America. It was only possible in the setting of religious liberty, reevaluation of Christian thinking, and spiritual awakening that had developed in early 19th century America. Everything from the, the doctrine of the Trinity, etc., had to be reevaluated. The Lord's hand was evident in directing that the restoration take place exactly when it did. Exactly when it did.
According to one historian, there was a special timing to when the restoration took place. Its timing in 1830 was providential. It appeared at precisely the right moment in American history. Much earlier or later and the church might have not taken hold. That's true. The Book of Mormon would probably not have been published in the 18th century. In that still largely oral world of folk beliefs prior to the great democratic revolution that underlay the religious tumult of the early republic. In the 18th century, Mormonism might have been too easily stifled and dismissed by the dominant enlightened gentry culture as just another enthusiastic folk superstition. Yet if Mormonism had emerged later, after the consolidation of authority and the spread of science in the middle decades of the 19th century, it might have had problems of verifying its texts and revelations. Especially revelations with Joseph Smith. How do you verify that? <laughs> I think everybody knows this is Brigham Young. Before we read this last quote, I want to turn to 6137, verse 79 with you. 6137. Verse 7 to 9. I'll have you read that, please. 7, 8, and 9 right there. For Christ also hath once suffered for, this, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also... Right here. Oh. 7, 8, 9. Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had, per had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. That says that people who died, because I know about the church of which there are millions, become heirs of the kingdom of God. And also all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive at the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of God. So Brigham Young is going to help us see that the kingdom of God is bigger than we thought it was. Pay close attention to this quote. Every faithful Methodist that has lived up to and faithfully fulfilled the requirements of his religion, according to the best light he had, doing good to all and evil to none, injuring no person upon the earth, honoring his God as far as he knew, will have as great a heaven as he have as he ever anticipated in the flesh, and far greater. Every Presbyterian and every Quaker and every Baptist and every Roman Catholic member, every reformer of whatever class or grade that lives according to the best light they have, and never had an opportunity of receiving a greater light than the one in their possession, will have and enjoy all they live for, this is the situation of Christendom after death. 
You may go among the pagans, or among all the nations there are, and they have their religion, their sacraments and ceremonies, which are as sacred to them as ours are to us. They are just as precious and dear to them, though we call them heathen. They are idolatrous worshippers, yet their religion is as sacred to them as ours is to us. That's true. If they live according to the best light they have in their religion, God is God over all and the Father of us all. We are all the workmanship of his hands. And if they are ignorant, filled with superstition, and have their traditions of the fathers interwoven like a mantle around and over them, that they cannot see any light, so will they be judged. And if they have lived according to what they did possess, so they will receive hereafter. And it will be glory. And will it be glory? Yes. Glory, glory, glory. I love this quote from Mary Mary because it explains to people that don't have the church, they live their religion the best they can, they'll, they will have the truth. They'll have the, the light when they die and go to the next life. Now, I want to show you some of the books that I got this information from so that if you want to do some further reading, you can do that yourself. Of course, <laughs> the scriptures are your best bet. Um, in addition to the scriptures, I use this book. It's called The World and the Province by Hugh Nibley. This is an excellent book. It's called The Apostles and Bishops in Early Christianity by Hugh Nibley. One of the texts that I quote from the most, well, actually I quote from all these books quite a bit, is this one, um, Milton Bagman's American Religion and the Rise of Mormonism. This is a very important book that I quote from extensively. Another one by Milton Bagman, uh, uh, Christian Churches of America, Origins and Beliefs. That's very important for this text. For this, this is a great book by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. It's a short book, but it covers the, 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 many of the points we made in this class. This is a very interesting book that I quote from as well. Restoring the American Ancient Church, Judgment and the Internet Christianity. This is a, a kind of a simple book. It's not really deep, but it's very um, adequate for, say, teenagers. You have to go to some other books, too. The History of Christianity by Eusebius. Uh, this one is important. This one, Here I Stand, is the best. This Rodney Stark's, Rodney, Roland Batten, I'm sorry, Roland Batten, it's the best book I know of on Martin Luther, and I quoted extensively from this book, as you can see. Um, there's a lot of quotes from, the, from, the, from this book in, in, the, in our presentation. Perhaps one of the books I quoted from the most was The History of the Christian Church by uh, George P. Fisher, who wrote an extensive book about the history of Christianity, and from a very level-headed, open view, realizing the, realizing the, 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 the truth of the, of the uh, apostasy. This book I quote from, from extensively, this is um, written by uh, Bart Ehrman. It's called Lost Christianities, 
Bart's a great uh, restoration writer because he doesn't believe he, he stayed out of Christianity. He doesn't believe any of it's true. And that's really important <laughs> for us, uh, isn't it? Perhaps the two books I quote from the most um, are The World Christian Movement, History of the World Christian Movement, by Steve Sundquist and and, uh, and Del T. Irvin. I know these men personally. I've talked to them about their book. It's current and it's multi-volume and it's very excellent uh, history of what happened to Christianity. And it's very, um, the flavor is uh, uh, non-denominational, so it's very good that way as well. Almost there. It's good just to have a, vo a one-volume history of Christianity book. This is the Orthodox history of Christianity. It's very well done and, and very objective. This is a newer book called The Migration and Making of Global Christianity, which talks about how Christianity became a global religion. I love this book. This is called The Corruption, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Uh, this is written by a Mormon who's not a Mormon yet. I hope one day he'll get baptized. But he, talks, he shows how the scriptures were corrupted by Christianity. None of these are members of the church. None of these are members of the church. Of course, you got Margaret Barker's um, King of the Jews, The Theology of the John's Gospel, where she really talks about how Margaret Barker's contribution is she goes back farther than anybody else and shows how Jesus, Jesus, the Godhead, has been corrupted by Christianity. And really, she really talks a lot about the negative aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity, etc. If you want a shorter book, there's this one. Uh, the history of Christianity, facts and fiction. This is really good because he, he instead of covering the whole the whole topic, he'll take different I did different aspects of Christianity that are fiction, fictitious. This guy hasn't been baptized yet, but will will be someday. And then finally, we have um, Steve Sinquist again, the man that I know in California. Understanding Christian mission. This is a great great book. So. I just want you to see the books that some of the books that this class came from, some of the content mastery stuff that had to be done. I want to bear my testimony of three things, two things actually. Number one, I know for myself that the church fell into apostasy. I've tried to show that to you in every way I possibly could. Uh, the church fell into apostasy, it did. Number two, the restored church was a miracle. It was a miracle wrought by God. Uh, I've tried to show it to you in an academic uh, setting so you could see academically and Christianity-wise that the church really answered all the questions that came forward. There were none that weren't answered by the by the Restoration. We often say the Restoration as a as a kind of as a as a primary child would study it, which is fine. But we leave out a lot of the details, a lot of the details which you questions on this class. I hope that this class was helpful to you. I hope that you learned a lot from it. And I very much just mean that I know the church is true. I know it academically. And I know it spiritually. I've had a witness of the Spirit to my, come to me. I know the church is true from the Holy Ghost. That's how I read these books and understand how Christianity fell away in the apostasy and how the apostasy happened, which was what I've heard showing in this class, how the restoration occurred as well. And I say it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We'd like to thank you for joining us today for exploring the scriptures with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. For your information, this would be our last podcast We'll continue with our podcast beginning in August. 
Dr. Bartholomew will be out of town for a number of tours that he will that he will be hosting. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to listen to www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week for another episode in church history with Dr. Bartholomew.